In the eyes of many opera-goers, Maria Callas is considered opera's greatest diva. She epitomizes the golden standard against which today's singers are still compared 64 years after her Met debut. Explore the life and legacy of the renowned diva in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. How did Maria Callas become a household name? And what happens when a singer's vocal powers diminish? Who were Maria Callas's contemporaries, and what stars have carried on her vocal legacy? I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and today I'm joined by lecturer Matthew Timmermans to discuss Maria Callas and the Metropolitan Opera Guild online learning course that aims to examine these enduring questions about La Divina herself. So Matthew, you and I have been friends for a little while now, and I know a lot about your love for Maria Callas, but I would like you to share with our listeners what makes your mixed background as an admirer of Callas, a performer, and a scholar ideal for teaching this course. My background may look quite fluid or or integrated, maybe even mixed on paper, but during the course of my career, it has felt very segmented. Uh, Working on this project, I challenged myself to reconcile what sometimes feels like three different identities that I'm sure many musicians might relate to, uh, a listener, a performer, and a scholar and thinker. At the risk of making a crude and overly simple comparison, perhaps this is comparable to the irreconcilable differences Callas felt between her private and public personas. Anyway, what I mean by three different identities is that as a scholar, for example, I've been taught to excise my own identity and biases when talking about music. But to me, that seems like such a shame because so much of what what drives my interest in Callas are things like my fraught relationship with her as a performer and my queer identity. I wanted to forefront what some might describe as irrelevant personal experiences in the context of Callas to encourage listeners to remember the impact our identities Um, and preferences have on the things we listen to and the stories we tell about them, something we explore with the many writers and biographers uh, of Callas. Framing our exploration in this way makes us more receptive to the idea that listening is a personal experience, one that is both inflected by the world around us and conversely impacts it. Sometimes this process of mediation and exchange conflates truth with fiction, as we'll see in the series. Maria Callas is probably the most extensively documented opera singer in history. So how did you decide what to focus on among the myriad materials that exist about her life? Maria Callas' archive is massive. Definitely the largest of any opera singer. 
It includes numerous recordings, newspaper clippings, interviews, biographies, and documentaries. All this to say, there were many YouTube holes that I fell into for many, many hours. From the beginning, I knew that trying to be comprehensive would be a recipe for disaster. Instead, I asked myself, what are the most memorable themes of Collis's legacy? I compiled a list that included her controversial voice, diva rivalries, uh, weight loss, tragic love life, and, and her ethnicity. With those in mind, I began reading, listening, and, and watching, asking myself, what are the ways that fans, scholars, and performers have told Callis' story with respect to these themes? Listening to figures like Franco Zeffirelli, uh, John Ardoin, um, Terrence McNally talk about Callas, I was struck by the way Callas's life and artistry were described in stereotypical, uh, antiquated, and very problematic concepts of divadom, ethnicity, and womanhood. I can't take all the credit for this analysis, of course. As I mentioned in the lectures, I was guided by the writing of a brilliant scholar named Nina Soon Eidsheim. Anyway, I was struck by the ways that Callas's life had been framed, retold, and passed on. They often felt limiting, especially after hearing Callas speak of her own experiences in some documentaries. To return to the question of selecting materials, the series became sort of a passion project to trace moments that exposed these problematic narratives, many of which I had regurgitated uncritically for years. I wanted to discover who was telling them. Was it Callas, uh, her mentors, her fans, the press? I mean, the list could go on forever. My hope was to find Kalos, a vision of her less shrouded in myth and, and legend. While I could say whether I was successful, perhaps it would be more interesting to let listeners find out and decide for themselves. Why do you think it's important that we revisit Kalos's career in 2021, especially so many years after she made her Met debut? 2021 comes after an incredibly difficult year. I have to pause before even saying it. Apparently, it's still so traumatic. Um, as the pandemic trudges on, it seems that we may be in for another one. Although this time has been difficult in a myriad of ways due to isolation, uh, violence, and death, it has also been an eye-opening moment for many who were previously blind to issues of systemic oppression. Valiant activists have risked their lives in spite of COVID-19 ravaging this country and the world to speak out against issues of sexism, racism, homophobia, and transphobia. One of the many very small ways that I hope to show my own solidarity is by revisiting and rethinking the ways that we have told historical narratives, the narratives that inform the way we talk about women or race today. Although we cannot say for certain what Kalas would have believed or said, I'm very transparent about this in the series, I do think the traces she left behind offer fertile spaces to explore what we've made of Kalas's legend and question how we should preserve it for posterity. In working on Kalas, one might say that race does not impact her, but I was surprised that I didn't have to look very far to find ways that the callous legacy has been curtailed by race and ethnicity. I think it is incredibly rewarding to explore the ways that Callis's ethnicity has shaped her career and those of her successors, like Shirley Barrett. The recent resurgence of BLM following the murder of George Floyd, as well as Dante Wright and Micaiah Bryant, among so many other Black lives at the hands of the police, 
necessitates that we not only tell the stories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, but also carefully reveal the ways that white stories are inflected with harmful notions of nationalism and racial essentialism, so that we might eradicate and no longer perpetuate them. I hope to have the opportunity to explore the impact of race and ethnicity on opera further in the future. Unlike most documentaries and historical accounts, your course is not going to end with Callus's death. Instead, you trace the attempts of critics and fans to crown her successor. What does telling Callus's story in this way bring to our understanding of her? The search for the second Callus has always fascinated me. Before the Guild even suggested the idea of doing a series on Callus, it was already my intention to do a podcast on the second Callus. It may not surprise you then to hear that the idea for the final lecture came to me before the first three. Um, I have always been bothered by the lack of attention given to our tendency to compare great singers like Kalas, and the ways that comparison can be exciting, and but also harmful. After exploring Kalas's life, I wanted to show how her shadow continues to affect performers today in both positive but also negative ways. So to end, tell me, what makes this series different from one of the many books or documentaries that exist out there on Callus? Rather than attempting to follow Callus's life religiously from birth to death, as many documentaries or books do, with this series, I wanted to address the gaps I saw in other sources. Instead of assuming that I could know Callus better than any other researcher, I wanted to ask, how have we told Callus's story? Who benefits from those narratives now that she is gone? And moving forward, how might we want to remember her differently? In my opinion, many documentaries and books use stereotypical narratives of ascension and decline, love and loss, to frame Collis's life and sell it to us. In these lectures, I also partake in the sensationalism of Collis's legacy. It's impossible not to, given that it haunts her entire archive. However, what I like to think that I did differently is reveal the dangers of fetishizing Collis's diva stature, operatic life, and her weight loss. Rather than simply feeding viewers information about Kalas, I wanted to make them aware of the stakes of retelling this information and how we are complicit in disseminating, disseminating sorry, harmful stereotypes embedded in these stories. I don't know yet how successful I was in achieving these goals, but hopefully this is a first step in the right direction. was lecturer Matthew Timmermans and his online course La Divina and the Callus Effect is now available for purchase. To purchase or to learn more about our other online learning offerings, visit www.metguild.thinkific.com. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>